Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power at some new times on your radio dial because we've started up Truth to Power Happy Hour. It is Friday after work here on Forward Radio when we're recording this and uh, we're trying out a new way to get the community into conversation by uh, rethinking the week and having a little uh, uh, you know decompression and chill out after another crazy week here in Louisville and the nation. Uh, joining me, Justin Mogg, here in the virtual studio today, I've got, I'm delighted to have three other programmers with me. Uh, as usual, Hart Hagen, host of the Climate Report and Let's Talk, which you can hear every day here on the station at 7 p.m., is joining us. Hi, Hart. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Thank you. Happiest happy hour to you. <laughs> but we also have in the studio Ruth Newman, who's been hosting Election Connection, and the election never seems to end, so we don't know what's going to happen with this show. But hey there, Ruth. Nice to have you. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the call with us. And we've also got Jim Johnson in the virtual studio with us from Solutions to Violence. Nice to have you joining us on Truth to Power, Jim. Well, glad to be here. And our special guest in the virtual studio with us today is going to talk about the theme of today's conversation, which is institutional racism and the criminal justice system. What an important topic for our times. And we're thrilled to have a judge with us today to discuss this, an insider's view, if you will. His name is McKay Chavan. He is a Jefferson Circuit Court Division 8 judge. And uh, he's got a website, too, where you can learn more about him. Uh, and I'll spell it out. M-C-K-A-Y is his first name. C-H-A-U-V-I-N dot com. Welcome to the studio, McKay. It's good to have you here, man. Thank you, Justin. I, I'm very much appreciated. It's uh, an important topic, and anywhere and everywhere we can talk about it uh, is a great thing. Yeah. You know, before we dive into the the topic of institutional racism and mass incarceration and all those important things, just give us our listeners a little feel about the judicial system here in Jefferson County. What's Division 8? What's a circuit court? Some of us know nothing about this. Some of us who are privileged and haven't had to deal with the judicial system know nothing about it. Just give us a quick overview of what you do on the bench, how long you've been doing it. Yeah, sure. We, we were we were talking about about that before we went on air about uh, I think it was described as a black box. It yeah, it is. It's <laughs> it's a place you know nothing about until you happen upon it, and by then it's probably too late, right. and you're just overwhelmed. It's just an overwhelming uh, place that that with a very high freakout factor because it is <laughs> of the unknown. The stakes are high. I, yeah. I described it uh, earlier. I said it's like if you knew nothing about medicine. And you walked into a surgical suite, and the first thing you saw was a guy in a mask cut somebody's chest open. You'd go crazy, <laughs> and and that's what it's like for people who wander into the justice system who don't know what's going on, and nobody stops to tell them. Now, here's what we're doing, and this is why we wear a mask, and this is what it's a scalpel, and this guy's asleep, and he's got a bad heart. You know, yeah, it's a whole conversation. There's a whole lot of context that that people are there every day understand that people are just visiting just don't get. So, a circuit court, to answer your question, is is a court of general jurisdiction. It's a constitutional court. And it has a um, civil docket, A to Z, anything from a, uh, a car wreck to wow. uh, uh, a contract dispute to, I mean, really anything you can think where you would have to take somebody to court or where you could get taken to court with a dollar jurisdiction of over $5,000, which at the time okay. seemed like a lot of money and still is to a lot of people, but it really makes our dockets full. Yeah. Uh, on the criminal docket, we have felony offenses, which is anything that carries a 
by definition, a penalty of one year or more, which by definition is served in the penitentiary if you're required to serve it. And that's anything from uh, flagrant non-support to capital murder. So a huge, huge, broad jurisdiction that really is one of the things that makes it such a fascinating job. It's never a dull moment. Wow. And then Division 8, real quick, what what divisions are there? And So the state is divided into judicial districts. And then depending on your population, it'll tell you how many judges each district needs to serve that population. So Jefferson County is a judicial district. It's the 30th judicial district. And we have, by law, we have 13 circuit judges to serve that jurisdiction. So there's not like a geographic area beyond Jefferson County but there are 13 of us. If there's some judges who have, there's one judge for maybe three counties, but for Jefferson County, there's 13 judges to serve our population, the biggest population in the state. Okay. And then my last sort of nuts and bolts question before we move on to the meat of this conversation, sure. uh, is, is your position elected and how often do you have to run for it and that kind of thing? It is elected, which is absolutely the worst part of the job. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. if you go to the website, uh, there, I, I write these essays about things and there's, there's a couple of them on judicial elections, which are funny because they're true and terrible because they're true. Um, but uh, it kind of gives you a feel for what that's like. But, but the answer is yes. Uh, you could also be appointed by the governor if, uh, if there's a vacancy, there's an appointment, but then you have to stand for election. It's a nonpartisan countywide election which means the same number of potential voters vote for a circuit court judge that do for Senate or Congress or anything else. Um, it's a huge number of votes. And that's problematic because back to our original discussion, nobody knows who we are. Nobody knows what we do. And so the way we get elected is, frankly, I wrote an essay called uh, how, basically it's how lucky we are to have such good judges because we really don't do anything <laughs> to deserve them based on how we pick them. But yes, we are elected and it's an eight year term for a circuit court judge. And I think we all come up at the same time and that next time we'll be up is 2022. Okay, I think that's really helpful for people just to contextualize things. Um, Anybody else on the call got some basic nuts and bolts questions or or wanna dive in with the first meaty one? Well, one thing that we're concerned about as a country is uh, racial discrimination in the justice system. So do you see any of that racial discrimination? If so, what are some of the solutions that you propose to it? Yeah, that's, it's a broad question, but it's a great place to start because anytime you talk about discrimination in America in anywhere, any institution or really any place, and the question is, is it, does it exist there? What's the answer? Yes, Um, but not the kind of racism that I think people think of when they think racist. It's not the overt um, uh, oppression, repressive, I'm going to keep you down because you're poor, because you're black, because you're not like me. It's, It's what we talked about at the beginning. It's institutional racism, which is a different deal. Institutional racism is the 400 years of history of historical oppression and repression of people that makes it so much more likely, statistically speaking, that if you are a person of color or a poor person, that you can get caught up in that system more so than if you're not. That's what we're talking about. And, and that's, that's not a theory. That's not an idea. That's a reality. That's, that's our reality. And it's something we in the criminal justice system have been talking about for 30 years that I've been there at least, for the last 15 years on the Racial Justice Commission, 
um, and actively seeking solutions for you once you get there. Now, the interesting part is to me that once you're in the system, the traditional types of racist uh, fears and the traditional type of racism and oppression that we think about really don't exist. Hmm. That, that color and money and what neighborhood you're from and who you know, and people find this hard to believe, and I appreciate that, they just don't matter anymore. The, the people who decide what matters have decided that doesn't matter. And that includes judges, it includes lawyers and prosecutors, and most importantly, it includes jurors. So once you're in the system, those things fall away. But what does are all of those limitations that got you there. And when it comes to solutions, the criminal justice system is not a place that really was designed to fix problems. We, we re, re, uh, reveal problems, we um, reflect problems, but in terms of resolving those problems, we're not exactly the tip of the sword. By the time you get to us, we're like the fire department. You know, the house is on fire. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, that, that ship has sailed. But what we've learned, directly to your point, Hart, in, in the last 30 years, in, in the 15 years I've been on the bench, I've seen this change, is that you do have responsibility to think about how people got there and to think about what happens when they leave there and what you can do while they're there to increase the chances that they don't come back. And those are the solutions that, that our limited little corner of the institutional universe provides, is what can we do for you while you're here, not to you and not about you, but what can we do for you while you're here that's gonna make your life better and in turn, is going to make our community's life better, your family's life better. It's it's what can we do now that we've got you? Because uh, we could spend all, all day talking about how a person got there. But once they're there, they become our responsibility. We can't abdicate that responsibility and we can't pass on that opportunity to maybe make up for some of the things that they didn't have that contributed to why they're there. Just for clarification's sake, I would like if you could possibly elaborate on your statement that it has to do with the three to 400 year history and poor and black and brown people get caught up in it, uh, you know, much more frequently. Could you clar um, just elaborate on that? How do people get caught up in that? So, so what institutional racism does is it, it uh, limits your opportunities and it creates much smaller space for you to operate in and a much more difficult road to advance. So all things being equal, there should not be a disproportionate number of poor people or people of color in the system. Well, there is. And what that tells you is all things are not equal. They're, they're just not. And for people, and it's really important to understand that context um, in, in sort of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps universe <laughs> and, and mentality is that not everybody's bootstraps are created and not everybody is in a position to do what is necessary to succeed. Now, I'm, I'm captain of the individual responsibility team, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I don't excuse bad behavior, but you do have to appreciate the context in which that behavior is exhibited. So, for example, my kids have never had to make a choice about joining a gang or not. That's not something that happened in their lives. My daughters have never had to decide whether or not to date someone who's involved in the drug trade. My kids 
don't have to worry about how they walk to the school and they don't have to worry that once they get there that bad things will happen to them and they know that when they get there it's a good school so the things that people who have not you don't need to judge explain racism to people who've experienced it but <laughs> for people who haven't experienced it they they just don't get it and they're very dismissive of that experience and they don't understand why somebody just doesn't get up out of bed, brush their teeth, comb their hair, and go get a job like everybody else. Well, it's not like everybody else. It's like everybody else that you know. So there's a difference between making good choices and having good choices. And racial, institutional racism limits your choices. So yeah. that's how and why, to some extent, that people of color and poor people end up in the system more often is because they have limited choices. And of course, the, the, the typical racist response to the situation you're describing where uh, people of color are overrepresented in the judicial system is to put the blame on the people of color, right? And say that there's something inherently wrong, but that's fundamentally, the, that's what racism is all about, right? And so uh, it's, it's, it's important that we recognize these structural factors, and it's important that we recognize that institutional racism, you turn this great phrase, is very different from an institution full of racists. Exactly. And that's, um, so it's interesting, those two perspectives are very interesting. So the, the person who's not experienced that type of racism, that life, who's not been oppressed or repressed and who's had opportunities, that's how they see the world. And they assume that they assume that the world sees them the same way, sees everybody else the same way it sees them and treats them the same way. So if all I know about you is your color, then I don't understand how you can't sort of, uh, uh, succeed in my world. And the answer is because you're not living in my world. Um, and that's why it's so important to understand that, because in the system, it's important to be colorblind, but not color stupid. That when somebody comes to the room, you, you don't assume they're just like the person who was in your courtroom immediately before that, or the person who was in the courtroom, going to be in the courtroom immediately after that. That those individual experiences shape people's lives, and you have to appreciate their context. You have, have to have empathy, and, and to the extent you can, understand it. And we have a program called Smart Probation that I've been churning out for about the last 12 years. And one of the things I always say at the orientation, which which we call the Kumbaya. My colleagues call it the Kumbaya. Uh, uh, is, is I say to these guys, because it's usually people who don't look like me and don't have my experience, my life experience. I'll say, um, to be clear, I'm not judging you. It says judge on the door. But I'm not here to judge you. And I'm not here to tell you what I would have done if I had your life. Because I know about your life. I've read about it. You don't know about mine. But it's like we were born on different planets. My life has been nothing but opportunities. And your life, to some extent, has been nothing but obstacles. And for me to say, if I had your life, here's what I would have done, is absurd. I don't know what I would have done. I have no idea how my life would have turned out. And there's nothing fair about that. But there's also nothing we can do about your past. So we've got to focus on your future. And when I say we, mostly I mean you. That the choices you make are still your choices. And while I have not lived your life, I know people who have who made different choices than you did. 
So we've got to figure out how to help you make better choices. Uh, judge, I would distinguish between your the constraints that you have in your role as judge. Uh, I mean, what your your choices, uh, what sentences and, and and that kind of thing, what to do in terms of procedure versus the statutes that you comply with. You have things like mandatory sentences. You have a huge disparity, uh, mind ending between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine. And uh, let, let me just read a little bit from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It says, studies show that people of all colors use and sell illegal drugs at remarkably similar rates. If there are significant differences in the surveys to be found, they frequently suggest that whites, particularly white youth, are more likely to engage in drug crime than people of color. And yet, in some states, black men have been admitted to prison on drug charges at rates 20 to 50 times greater than those of white men. And in major cities racked by the drug war, as many as 80% of young African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject, subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. So, you know, I, I would ask, like, we're talking about institutional racism. What institutions are racist and which ones, if any of those, do you control and which ones of those are out of the control, like in, in, you know, embedded in the law, embedded in mandatory sentencing, et cetera? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff to unpack there. You've got the war on drugs, the failure of the war on drugs, and the history of the war on drugs and how it got started, which has a tremendous racist component, just flat out racist. Um, going back to the Nixon administration, that that's not, you know, I don't think that's even opinion. I think I think that's that's fact as to as to where the war on drugs actually started and how it started. There's all kinds of literature, all kinds of, of books written about. It. There's the thing you mentioned about crack versus powder. Um, that that's a federal thing. It's not it's not a, a state court thing. Uh, we don't we don't make that distinction. And they found in the federal courts that distinction has been taken away, uh, and it's no longer the case. But, but here's the interesting thing about your, your point about how is it that if every if the same number of white people and the same number of black people are dealing drugs, why, why are so many more black people per, uh, per capita um, percentage wise being caught? And, and this is a crazy answer, but it's true. Um, and I remember David James, who's a policeman now in the Metro Council, said this once. He said, my people are the only people who sell drugs in the open. It's like dynamite fishing in a barrel that it's low hanging fruit, that the, the drug traffic that goes on that's open and notorious is akin to prostitution that's on a, a stroll. Um, it's right there, it's in your face. So a prostitute who's prostituting herself on a street corner is gonna get arrested, whereas a call girl, an out call service or um, something that's inside and more concealed is not. And it, it almost is that simple. Now, there's a lot more to it in terms of dabbling in drugs and getting immersed in the drug trade culture. There are people who pass through and there are people who um, don't. Uh, there, there are people who engage in it for a time and then because they had other opportunities or because they had something else going in their life, moved on. And there's other people who, who didn't. And I, I think it's fair to say that culturally, um, and part of that's the racism part, why, why is that? Uh, uh, the kids that I'm talking to at Kumbaya, for example, I'll say, um, how many people know 
somebody who's been murdered, every hand goes up. How many people know more than five people who've been murdered? Every hand goes up. Wow. How many, how many people know somebody who's died of a drug overdose? Every hand goes up. More than five, every hand goes up. So I say to those guys, your life is at risk because if the people around you are dying, then you are at risk of dying. So you have to get out of that crowd because the difference between them and you so far has been luck and you cannot depend on that. So for every kid in that room, there was somebody in his life, and I'm going to use the word role model, who was engaged in drug trafficking and profiting from it and rewarded for it. It's different in the other parts of town where if you're not doing it openly, you're not doing it notoriously, and there's no social reward for it. It's a stigma in the East End. If you were doing that in my neighborhood, you were a freak and you were somebody to be dealt with. That's how we saw the world. But if I saw the world differently, where I saw that you had access to the things that I would enjoy in life at that age, and I'm talking about women, and I'm talking about swag, then that becomes, you become an important person in my life and someone to emulate. It, it exists culturally in the West End, I'll say for lack of a better word, more so than the South End and the East End. It, it just does. And, and I'm not saying it's right or good, but to deny that would be color stupid and, and you can't deny it. And it doesn't mean you're more likely to do it because you're black has nothing to do with, it, but with that. But because you're black, you're more likely to live in that neighborhood. You're more likely to have fewer opportunities. You're more likely to be exposed to people who do that. And it changes your, it, it limits your ceiling. I, I say to those same kids, my whole life I've been surrounded by people who made clear to me either expressly or implicitly that I was capable of doing anything. They are not. Their lives were not like that. Uh, in fact, and most interestingly, in the last couple of years of the uh, orientation, I've, I've learned to do this, and it's really fascinating. I say it's more likely that in your life you've been told openly or it's been made clear to you that you are no damn good, that you are worthless. And every single time we have this, at least two people cry because it's true. That's what they've been told. That's, that's the message they get. And if I don't think I'm valuable, then I'm not worth the effort I need to make to have success. It doesn't matter what happens to me because I'm no good. And I know I'm no good because look at my life and look at the people around me and look how they treat me and look what they say about me. And the, the group that's most true for is young women. Oh my God, the self-esteem issues that are heaped on young women in our society and in, the, in all communities, but but the women who end up in the, in the criminal justice system are, are women who have been trashed their whole lives, who've been made to feel completely worthless. Uh, and so one of the things you have to say to these people, that sounded weird, one of the people you have to say to the people you're trying to help in these uh, meetings is, you, you got value. I think you're worth this effort, but I need you to believe that. I need you to think that you're worth it because if you think that you're worth it, you're less likely to join a gang. You're less likely to get involved in drugs. And, and most importantly, you're more likely to see a future. If you didn't think you were going to live another year, you'd be making different choices today than, than you did. If you didn't think that you had a future, you would be making different choices than if you thought you did. 
you would be planning for your retirement, your IRA, and your grandkids, you'd be thinking about right here, right now. And when you think about right here, right now, you're much more likely to make an impulsive, dangerous, very risky decision that could cost you your freedom, cost you your life. And that's why I say that the criminal justice system reveals that. But, but how do I fix that? You know, that's a societal issue that, that all I can do is point out. And like the old thing about, you can't save all these starfish, but I'm going to save this one. Mm. I'm going to throw this one back. It, on a very individual basis, you can make a difference for the people who appear in front of you. And that does have a ripple effect. Every time somebody goes, doesn't go to prison, it has a huge ripple effect in the community for their family and for everybody else. Um, but sometimes it takes a tremendous effort to keep somebody from making the kind of choices that end up with incarceration because they haven't learned to make those good choices because good choices didn't matter to them because they didn't matter. That's so a lot of psychology heaped on top of that, but it's, it's my experience. So my question here, uh, Judge, as you pointed out, the war on drugs began in 1982, Reagan administration, it's been a dismal failure. What we have done is criminalize drug addiction and criminalize people dealing in drugs. So it seems to me that the, an easy answer here is maybe not so easy, but an answer, at least partially, if we create a universal health care system, a universal health care system that includes um, revenue for mental health care. So if I'm addicted to a drug, I can go to an organization. There are drug abuse centers that are 85% successful in helping people uh, beat their addiction, their criminal dependency. But most people cannot afford, most people that are addicted to drugs cannot afford those institutions. So if we have a a universal healthcare system that includes mental health care, and I can go to an organization that can help me deal with my addiction, we diminish the the demand for drugs. And hopefully that will diminish the, 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 the war on drugs and, and because it's just, it's not only been a dismal failure in terms of helping people kid, uh, kid, uh, their drug addiction, but it's it's also created a lot of violence within our communities. I, I don't disagree in terms of where should the money be spent. It should be spent on helping people. It's it's a medical crisis. It's not yes. a, it's not a medical crisis. I, I, I agree. But um, but to be clear, and, and I have the well deserved reputation for being very hard on people who do deal drugs, relatively. And what that means is if, if you're dealing drugs in our community and you end up in Division 8, your, your, your lawyer, if they know what they're doing, will give you the speech which says, whatever happens here, he's probably going to put you in jail for a little while. Um, and it's absolutely necessary to do that, that, that you have to balance the cost-reward continuum in favor of cost, that nobody should walk away from that thinking, nothing will happen to me if I continue to do this. Now, there's a difference between a, a what I call a disruptive sanction, that I need to put you in jail long enough for you to think about what you did and to lose your place in the continuum of drug dealing. And I, and I do that regularly. And I will tell you from people who have who've come through that, um, it seems like a weird thing that people say, but they say, thank you. I know that's so bizarre and it's not true for everyone, but creating that space, whether it's on probation with smart probation or it's sending somebody to jail and then sending them to treatment, that space that gets created is the space they need sometimes to get away from the things 
that got them in trouble in the first place. So, I, but treatment is huge. It's a huge thing. And you mentioned mental health too. I got I to gotta say something about that because, oh my God, people think that if you don't know any better, you think that people, if it's Commonwealth versus whoever, whoever is probably a dangerous, bad person. That is just not true. Generally speaking, they're undereducated, underemployed, under the influence, and likely suffering from some form of mental illness. That there's not one box that you put people in. There's a whole bunch of boxes, and the and sometimes you're in more than one. The the overlap between mental health, uh, mental illness, and drug addiction is phenomenal. So the good news is that you know there's this interesting point in time where whether you consider yourself extreme left or extreme right, everyone agrees that we probably shouldn't keep locking people up like that. And you might believe it because you think you shouldn't ever put a human being in a cage. Or you might believe it because, you know what, caging human beings is pretty damn expensive. But however we got there, there's a place we can talk about it and we can make a difference that says, okay, if we're not going to incarcerate people, what do we need to do? And it's back to what you said, Jim. It's we help them. We help them deal with the problem that got them in the criminal justice system. And most of the time that means... I mean, 90% of the time, that means drugs. I, the, I say that I've gone, yeah. in the 15 years I've been on the bench, I've gone from being a judge to an addiction counselor to a life coach. Um, that, that That's really my job now is when you come to me, something is broken, and my job is to try and help you fix it, whatever it is. And most of the time, it's going to be, let's start with your drug problem. We're talking here on uh, a special happy hour edition of Truth to Power with Judge McKay Chavan. He is from the Jefferson Circuit Court Division 8. You can learn more about him. He does some great writing on this issue of institutional racism and the criminal justice system on his website, mckayshavan.com. That's M-C-K-A-Y-C-H-A-U-V-I-N.com. My name is Justin Mogg. I've got three other forward radio programmers here on the program. Uh, Jim Johnson is in the virtual studio along with Hart Hagen and Ruth Newman, who has our next question. Go ahead, Ruth. Yes, I kind of paused when you talked about they need space, because previously you were talking about living in a community that does not give you a lot of options, that, you know, puts up a lot of obstacles. And I completely agree that somebody who has been brought into the justice system, you know, needs space. But I wonder to myself, does that space have to be going to jail? I do you have any um, opinions about restorative justice? Yes. Instead of jail. I sit on the board of the uh, restorative justice. Um, uh, I think we call it Mid-States. It's, it's VOA Mid-States Restorative Justice. And uh, Libby Mills and I are working on a project now. One part that's going to be, a, and COVID has kind of really screwed things up, but um, in terms of the progress we're, we were trying to make, but there was going to be a restorative justice uh, component to the to the smart probation, uh, particularly for for younger kids. I had a great program with the uh, Muhammad Ali Center, which is a wonderful place. I, I think people yeah. think of that as like a museum. Oh my gosh, it's it's so much more than that. Yeah, it is. They created a whole curriculum for the self esteem issues that I was talking about. That was just phenomenal. And and through restorative justice, it'd be a similar thing with circles trying to help people understand how to make choices and how the choices that they've made have affected them and affected other people. And there's a third project that's in its infancy that is about, and it involves, it involves uh, or will require the involvement of, of other uh, agencies to be the, the Commonwealth attorney's office and um, uh, 
to some extent, the public defender's office. And, and um, uh, the idea is to, to find those cases within our system, like you do in the juvenile system, which is really where it's kind of found its, its uh, uh, hit its stride, uh, to find cases where that's appropriate and, and to test that out and see how it works. I'm a, I'm a fan of restorative justice. Even if it's not full-on restorative justice, the, the idea of restorative justice is the core concept of empathy is so important for everybody everywhere, but particularly in the criminal justice system, particularly when somebody's done a terrible thing. Um, if you've done a terrible, terrible thing, and, and, and people do terrible, terrible things sometimes, and sometimes they're terrible, terrible people, but I have to say it's pretty rare. In 30 years, I've known <laughs> yeah. five people who I would consider you know, just basically soulless. Like there's just nobody there. And if you knew about them, you could figure out how they got to be that way, but it doesn't change the fact that they are that way and they cannot live amongst us. It's just not okay for them to be around other people. But for everybody else, you know, um, uh, that empathy is a big deal. And when you do something terrible, an important thing as a judge is to have that person recognize the nature of what they did and the impact it had on other people and not just, oh, man, this has messed my life up. Well, of mm. course, it's messed your life up. Um, but if you're going to change, if you're going to grow, if there's real hope for what's going to happen next, it starts with a recognition that this has hurt other people. And sometimes there's an interesting study um, when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, we had a, a started a program called um, uh, Project Backfire. And, and one of the things we found in, in trying to communicate this to the community to put down the guns um, was the impact you're going to jail had on your mother. Uh, it was really interesting. So the study showed that I don't care what happens to me because I'm no damn good, but I do care that this hurt, this has hurt my mother. So our commercials, our, our programming was really targeted at that, that message. So um, the jail component though is still important. Punishment is a real thing. And you know that because when you were a kid, if you did something wrong, you got punished for it. But you always have to people punish people proportionally, that the punishment has to fit the crime. Because if it doesn't, then it's not fair. And if it's not fair, it's not about me anymore. It's about you for punishing me incorrectly. Mm. So um, a long answer to a, to a short question. If the, if the question is, is restorative justice a great idea? The answer is yes. Well, I've been meaning to wanting to ask, too, uh, and then the whole idea of empathy or lack thereof in the system kind of gets to this. There, We see people out on the streets now. There is a fundamental mistrust of our criminal justice system, and I know that makes your job really, really, really hard. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, you could tell us about why that is uh, and the sort of Tinkerbell idea <laughs> behind the criminal justice system. Uh, but, but I also would like to take this opportunity to have you share your perspective on signature gate related to judges' signatures on warrants, right? So go ahead yeah. and, and touch on some of these trust in the system issues. I, I think it's a great example because... It requires kind of uh, taking all the stuff we talked about together so far and, and gives you a concrete example of it. So, um, so appreciating that context of, of uh, institutional racism, appreciating that context of how that must feel to someone who feels disenfranchised and dismissed and disrespected. Um, there was a suggestion made that judges, circuit court judges included, were scribbling their names on warrants in the hope 
that people would not be able to recognize their signature <laughs> so that two things would happen. One, that judge could not be accountable for, for signing that warrant. And two, nobody could challenge that warrant. Now, I'm going to just tell you this like it is. That's a stupid thing to think. <laughs> and my reaction is, how can anybody be that stupid? But that reaction is wrong. Um, it's natural because I'm telling you, there's no way that has ever happened. There's never been a single case anywhere ever that a person was not able to find out who signed a warrant. And there's never and never will be a case where uh, uh, you couldn't challenge a warrant because you couldn't read a signature. We sign those documents like we sign every document, like deeds that transferred if, if your house gets sold, hmm. God forbid, by the commissioner, I sign a deed and your house has my scribble on it that, that transferred your home. I sign my name a thousand times, literally uh, a month. And it's exactly the same every time, but it's a scribble. And a lot <laughs> of us have that. The exception is Smith Haney, the family court, who's Hugh Haney's son and signs his name like it looks exactly like Hugh Haney's signature. <laughs> like, look, it's beautiful. It's like each one. So, so the, the very idea of that is ludicrous but and but what's important about that is people don't think it is and what that tells you is how bad things have gotten where right. somebody thinks that that we are capable of doing something like that you can't be dismissive of that feeling because that feeling is legitimate that feeling comes from a real place even though the the thing they're pointing to is absurd that feeling is not and so what you can't say is well you're stupid for thinking that what you have to say is, wow, um, what can we do to build your confidence in what we're doing? What can we do? So Signature Gate is funny because uh, so we started printing our names. And the only problem with that is my printing sucks, too. So <laughs> I, I got a stamp and I stamp it every time. If, if you want to know what I signed. And, and, and it's hard not to take it personally, though, because the very idea of that is so it's it's hurtful. I mean. Yeah. To suggest that we would do that or that some judge would do that is to suggest that, that you know, I would do that. And it's just hurtful. So you have to be careful about your, your reaction versus your response. You have to swallow your pride a little bit. You got to take a deep breath and get behind the incident or the, the, the spark that, that uh, may have lit the powder keg and think about, man, this powder keg is a big deal. What, what can we do to diffuse that? How, how can we help? Yeah, and and I I I throw out this Tinkerbell idea, but touch on that uh, because yeah. the, this this yeah. this fundamental trust and belief is what really sustains a criminal justice Absolutely. system, right? Absolutely, it is a Tinkerbell system, and and Tinkerbell, as we all know, um, only lives and survives so long as you believe in her, and if you stop, she dies. Hmm. And and the dangerous time that we're living in is where. From all corners, the justice system is being so disrespected um, for whether it's for political gain or personal gain or ignorance or malice. It doesn't matter. It's coming from all kinds of places where the suggestion is we can no longer trust these people who we elected or were appointed to make these decisions on our behalf. They are untrustworthy. And, and when you say that, the corrosive effect of that is so serious and so potentially disastrous that it could lead to the absolute failure of this system. Because if you stop believing, it dies. 
it absolutely dies. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but the wake up call for us is, and it's hard because, you know, judges speak through their orders and there's not a forum where if you criticize an opinion that I wrote, that I come back and say, well, no, what you don't understand is, mm. um, you know, I, there's no opportunity for that. We're, we're in fact, when you're a judge, you surrender certain, a certain amount of your first amendment rights. You, there are things that you don't say and can't say because it wouldn't be appropriate for you to say that. Mm. Because if, if I said that, then you're more likely to believe that the decision I made, the next decision I was made was based on that belief as opposed to the facts and the law. So I, I have the advantage of knowing every circuit court judge in Jefferson County. There's not a single person I wouldn't trust. There's no reason not to trust them. There's not a single person who would ever do anything like that for any reason. Um, but the important part is, and mostly because most people don't know us is, it's easy to believe that we might right. if you've lost faith in the system. And if, and if in your life experience, the system has never treated you with respect or treated you uh, with any kind of regard. Right. So the, the point is um, that belief is important and we must find ways to increase people's faith and trust in the system legitimately. And part of that is owning the parts of the system that, that are um, imperfect at best. You know, it's not a perfect system because it's run by people and people are not <laughs> perfect, but it's a pretty amazing system because it's run by people. It's not, uh, it's not a machine. It's, it's mm. made up of real people who make decisions, feeling the weight of those decisions because those decisions affect real people. Judge, I have a question about the Fourth Amendment. Do, do people, are we adequately protected against unreasonable search and seizure? And, you know, including like the, you know, the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. Right. And, uh, you know, so we have that probable cause standard in the Constitution, but then the Terry versus Ohio decision says if a policeman's right there and there's reasonable suspicion that a crime is in progress, then then they can go on that reasonable suspicion. It just seems like that's a gaping hole. And, uh, you know, is that the way it should be? Um, so, so you have the Fourth Amendment, which is the Constitution, or it's actually the Bill of Rights, is, is the starting point for that discussion. And then you have 240 years of case law that interprets circumstances where you don't need a warrant. And there's, uh, there was a, 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 I can never say this word, mnemonic device that I had. And I wish I had a mnemonic device to remember how to say mnemonic would be great. <laughs> but uh, but uh, when I was at law school, a big spice sets out the exceptions to the warrant clause, automobile, border, uh, in, in inventory, good faith. There, there, are, there are many legitimate reasons and circumstances where a warrant is not necessary because the, the, um, privacy interest that's being invaded is less is a lesser interest the law says than invading your home or invading your your personal space in a more disruptive uh meaningful way so um it's it's constantly changing it evolves over time which is good um but the the idea that uh which i think is interesting when we talk about search warrants the the current conversation makes it appear as though a search warrant is a weapon. And to your point, it's not. The search warrant is, is a shield. It's not a sword. You've got to come to me 
you've got to come to somebody like me to ask permission before you can go into somebody's space. You can't just go. And, and that's kind of lost in this conversation. The very idea that you have to get permission is a great idea. It's a foundational idea. It's a fundamental idea. Uh, and it's based on the healthy mistrust of power. And a healthy mistrust of power is fundamental, is vital to a democracy. But an unhealthy mistrust of power and of government is fatal. Back to the Tinkerbell anal uh, analogy. That, 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 and that balance is shifting. If you see a search warrant as a sword... If, it's been, if you think it's been weaponized, then, then we need to help understand why you see it that way and what we can do to help you see it for what it is. But we don't need to change it. Um, it's fundamentally sound. The, the basis of that is awesome, that you have to get somebody who does not have a dog in that fight to say there is probable cause. Now, I, I sign a lot of warrants, and I review a lot of warrants. I probably reject maybe 10%. Because most of the time, it's right there. It's probable cause. I said to somebody the other day, if, uh, and, and we keep them all on file. You can see every warrant I've ever signed. If you find a single warrant in there that doesn't have probable cause, I'll eat it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't exist. Probable cause typically would be a police officer comes in with a warrant and says, uh, I was walking my canine, uh, 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 my, my drug dog, through a storage facility, and he alerted on this storage locker. Uh, the, here's the certification that says how the dog has been trained, and here's um, the locker is goes back to Joe Jones. Uh, Joe Jones has uh, uh, been arrested five times for trafficking in cocaine. So you, you get to look in that locker. That's just the way that is. Um, if you took out some of that stuff and you got down to I was passing by there myself and I thought I smelled cocaine. Well, who, who are you to smell cocaine? You, you don't get to look in there. But but probable cause is is a legitimate and thought out, well thought out standard that is not too low to trip over, but not too high to prevent legitimate law enforcement actions. The keeper of that is not the, the, the decision maker in that. Uh, uh, continuum is not the police, though. It's the judge, the detached neutral magistrate, which is what it says in the Fourth Amendment. The perception is unfairly and wrongly that that people, uh, that judges are in cahoots with the police. It's not true, but the fact that people think it's true is really important, very important, and cannot be dismissed. It tells you where we are in terms of how bright Tinkerbell's light is these days. Um, I have a question on that Tinkerbell effect because there were two statements that you made. One that I read that you were saying that the criminal justice system is where societal problems get revealed more than they get resolved. Now, I have a question about that. How do they get revealed since it's behind a black box and the public really doesn't have access? The other yeah. statement that you said was that people should be able to see what is going on inside the courtroom from anywhere, which led me to think that you're thinking that maybe a courtroom should be televised so that people can just turn on their TV, um, which I, I wonder about. To me, that that completely changes the whole dynamics. And then people are talking to the TV rather than to their cause. 
to their own personal feelings. But I, I, um, I agree that in order for us to trust in the process that we have to know more about it, but I don't see any channels and I don't consider TV to be one of them, but how do we reveal to the general public what is going on in the courtroom? So when my dad came from a little town in, in uh, Simpson County in Franklin, Kentucky, and when the circuit court came to town in Simpson, Kentucky, Simpson County, Kentucky, my father said farmers would let their crops rot in the field because everybody would go to circuit court to watch what was happening. Hmm. Um, that's not how it works now. And the black box is not a lockbox. You know, you, you can get in there, but you, but you have to make considerable effort to do that. And you probably have to have a reason to do that, meaning that you have some interest in whatever it is, the specific case that's going on, that people can't just drop what they're doing and come see what's, what's happening in court. So, um, uh, I do think that one of the things that we can do to increase trust is to invite people in because it's really interesting. So when I, and I do that all the time, I have people come with more so before COVID, but, but even now I have people who are on the phone because we're on a, I have a teleconference line now that every time I'm on the record, that teleconference is on and there's a number you can call in and listen if you want to. My goal was always to, to stream the proceedings, but I ran into some technical issues and, and I haven't been able to do that, but I think I'm getting close. And, and my hope is next year that we'll be streaming the, the proceedings in court so that anybody anywhere can, can log on and see what's going on. Um, just like you could, if you were sitting in the audience. So what's interesting about that is invariably just without exception, when somebody spends a day in that courtroom, they they're gobsmacked. It's like, that, that is not at all what I thought that was. Holy smokes. This is what you do all day? Yeah. <laughs> this is how you treat people? Yeah. Because the perception, and, and another essay I wrote uh, about Judge Judy, um, <laughs> the Judge Judy syndrome is that you're in my courtroom for my entertainment. Yeah. And I'm here to belittle you for the choices you've made to comic effect. Now, I am hilarious, to be clear. <laughs> And yeah, I, will say, I can vouch for that. And I, and, I will, and, I, and I don't hesitate to say something that's funny because it has a great tension-busting effect. I imagine. You know, if you're a little bit funny when you're a judge, then, then you're a lot funny. But if you're legitimately <laughs> funny when you're a judge, then you're hilarious. And so when I say something that's funny on the bench, um, it relaxes people to our original point, and the freak-out factor goes way down. Um but what they, what I don't do is belittle someone. What I don't do is demean them for bringing their problems to me. Um, that's not what we do. But if all you saw was one of the, the fake reality shows on TV, then you would make assumptions about that relationship between a judge and a person who appears before a judge that simply are not true. And I can't compete with that. I'll, I got nothing. Uh, all I can do is invite people in and, and the takeaway for them is this is not what I thought it was. And I tell you the most interesting group is jurors. Um, hmm. Why I'm a huge fan of jurors. Hmm. I think jurors are awesome. Uniformly. They're awesome. And they accept that awesome responsibility to make that decision in a way that's so meaningful uh, and so real that it changes them. Um, that it's, it's not a debate when, when they get through a, a, trial we always have sort of a debriefing at the end because they need 
a chance to decompress and they need kind of absolution for for it's a hard thing to do to tell somebody in a criminal case uh, i think you're guilty and you're going to go to prison it's also a hard thing to do fascinatingly uh, to say i think you did this but i don't think they proved it and i'm letting you go um, that's also hard on a juror but they do it all the time um, because they desperately want to do the right thing and they're desperately afraid of doing the wrong thing just like you would be just like you hope they would be jurors are awesome but they come away with such a different perspective on the system having been a part of it that they never hear the words the jury decided today the same way ever again they just don't hear it the same way because they they know what it is now they get it and they know it's i always say that you you can't get 12 people to agree to leave a burning building so when 12 people agree that this is what should happen, you should have tremendous faith in what those 12 people decided, because they're the only 12 people in the world who listened intently mm. to the point of exhaustion to everything was said. The only people who actually know what the law was, because it was explained to them and given to them, and the only 12 people who talked about it until they all agreed that this is what should happen. It's, it's a phenomenal little miracle every time it happens, and it happens regularly because of the people that people the system uh not you know because of judges or lawyers necessarily although we help but it really is a people-run system we've got just a couple minutes late left and i know that hart has one last question for you uh, judge i have a fair amount of indignation related to the criminal justice system is my indignation because i'm ignorant i mean i have a friend who uh said you know in relation to the election we've got to get these drug dealers off the streets well the biggest drug dealers in history include ronald reagan oliver <laughs> north uh, the chemical companies that process the cocaine the banks that launder the money for the uh, for the uh, for for the uh, drug uh, cartels, uh, the cartels, I mean, the, you know, the, the CIA and the DEA who are uh, in bed with the, with the drug dealers. And uh, so, you know, that's a lot to bite off in two minutes, but I would never know from your commentary that there's interpersonal racism at the level of the arrest, you know, so I'm a little confused. Well, it's not ignorance. I would call it lack of experience. The depth and breadth of your experience is not broad enough to give you perspective on how the system actually works, which maybe is a nicer way to say ignorance. But but, but really, <laughs> it, really is, it, it is just a lack of um, most people only know something about the criminal justice system indirectly, something they heard from somebody else, um, read in the newspaper, saw on TV. And if you've ever been a part of one of those stories that, you know, it's like telephone by the time it gets to print or the time it gets, you know, to, to broadcast, it's, it's a, it's a copy of a copy of a copy. Mm. It's, it's a variation on what actually happened. And it's summarized in a way that leaves out a lot of meat, a lot of times in favor of, of writing it to, to both interest, entertain and inform people. So, um, so uh, the, the idea that you should be concerned with people who exercise such tremendous power is solid you should we all should everybody should the idea that the people you have entrusted with that power can't be trusted is probably not when it comes to judges we're kind of a different breed of cat um we, we come from very different backgrounds um but we all end up in the same space 
when you put the judge hat on, or I guess more particularly the judge robe, <laughs> you wear that robe because it reminds you that, that you're not there in your individual capacity. You're there as a representative of the law. You're there in the justice business. And the things that you might want to do, um, let me put it this way. Here's a better analogy. So there's a, there's a, there's a three-lane highway, right? Um, and some people are on the right lane, some people are on the left lane, some people in the center lane, and some people are kind of all over the road depending mm. on traffic. But you don't go outside those lanes ever. You just don't do it. Mm. And those lanes are what give you, those guardrails are what give you comfort that you can trust the person behind the wheel. Mm. They're not going to take you over the edge. Um, uh, out of respect, out of experience, out of they're just good drivers, uh, whatever it is, that that that's just how it is. It's easy for me to say that because I know these people and I've been in that system for 30 years. I worked for five different Commonwealth attorneys and four different U.S. attorneys. Uh, I, I've had probably 20 colleagues on the circuit court. I've never met anybody who got up in the morning thinking about how to abuse their power, or do somebody wrong. Uh, we don't always agree on what the right thing is, but everybody wants to do the right thing. So the, the solution is to find a way to um, uh, see the system work at its best and not its, at its worst, and to actually see it firsthand and not hear about it thirdhand. And unfortunately, we're all out of time. This has been such a rich and deep conversation. So much uh, great information from our guest today, Judge McKay Chavan. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge. Justin has the unenviable I appreciate job Justin. of having thank you to so end much. this conversation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank Hart Hagen, Jim Johnson, and Ruth Newman for joining me, Justin Mogg, as well, here on our Truth to Power Happy Hour. You can hear us again next week right here at this time on Forward Radio 106.5. FM. Thanks, everyone. Be well. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you, Justin. <laughs>